Well, good morning again. It is good to see you here. And we are in week two of our series through the book of Galatians. I'm really excited about next Sunday. My friend Chris Dalmich, who is a pastor of a wonderful church in Hempstead Assembly uh, in Hempstead, New York, he's going to be coming up and preaching. How many of you remember Pastor Chris from last year? He was a wonderful blessing, and we're so excited to have him back. He's going to be teaching us out of Galatians chapter 3. You're not going to want to miss it. But this morning, we are in Galatians chapter 2. And the question before us in Galatians chapter 2 feels a little bit timely. The question is this, how do we disagree with each other and still love each other? How do we disagree with each other and still do life together in a way that is life-giving and honors God? And we're going to look at something really interesting because in Galatians chapter 2, we see the showdown between arguably the two most significant, powerful men in the early church. One's name is Peter, or in this text, he's called Cephas. Peter, this is the Peter, the, the one who followed Jesus, who was in his inner circle. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And then Paul, who at one point actually persecuted and Uh, executed Christians, but experienced a radical conversion on the road to Damascus. And now Paul was a leader in the early church, planting churches all over Asia Minor and writing much of what we have now in the New Testament, including the text that we're looking at this morning. And so we're going to look at what they do when they come to a moment of disagreement, and we're going to learn from it some really important things about how should we as a church, as a community, how do we navigate disagreement and move forward in a way that is gospel-centered and true. So let's look at this text in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm reading to you from the ESV, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas, this is Peter, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James is uh, half-brother of Jesus, he's the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, he's also very influential, and there were Jewish believers that were coming from Jerusalem to visit Antioch, where Jews and Gentiles were beginning to uh, grow together in their faith. And so before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. He would, he would hang out with them. He'd go into their homes. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. He's saying we, the Jewish people, we've also had to put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to be justified. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's being very clear here. But... But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's saying, if I go back to the law and try to make myself righteous before God through the law, which has been torn down through faith in Christ, then I enter back into sin. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's quite a passage. We're going to learn three things that should be true about gospel community. Three things that should be true about this church, about uh, these people in this room and that call this church their home. And the first thing we're going to learn is that we should be a people who are willing to have hard conversations. People who are willing to have hard conversations. Paul had a lot of reasons not to go after Peter. Peter was a quote-unquote true apostle. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He saw the resurrected Christ. Paul didn't have any of those things on his resume. Paul had a later revelation and a vision of the crucified Christ. And so Paul could have easily said, who am I to say anything to Peter? I mean, Peter was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter walked on water. I mean, I know he fell, but he first he walked on water. How can I say anything to Peter? But Paul was willing to have a hard conversation. He could have said, oh, I can't, you know, it doesn't seem to be bothering anybody else. I like in the text how it says, even Barnabas, you get the film that Barnabas was the rule keeper, he was the goody two-shoes, and they're like, what, even Barnabas got caught up in this? He could have said, if it doesn't bother Barnabas, it shouldn't bother me. But Paul was willing to have a hard conversation. Now, when it comes to hard conversations, there's two types of people, and then there's a spectrum of these people in between. On this end, there's people who love hard conversations. You, you run into hard conversations. You enjoy conflict. You kind of consider yourself a truth teller. You know, all children are truth tellers for the most part. Have you noticed that? My six-year-old, Madeline, when I pick her up out of her bed in the morning and I'm trying to say good morning to her, I love you, we're so, going to have such a great day, all of a sudden, most mornings she'll look at me and she'll go, eh, what'd you eat? What'd you eat, Dad? She's a truth teller. She's letting me know. You got to go brush your teeth before you come and get me out of bed. Kids are truth tellers. And some people are truth tellers. They're going to let you know what they think, where they stand. On the other end, there are people who don't run into hard conversations. They run away from hard conversations. They don't want that. It's too awkward. It's, it's too uncomfortable. They can't handle the tension. And then there's a spectrum of people in between. But in gospel community, we learn to have hard conversations for the sake of health. And it's called, and elsewhere in Scripture, it's called speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. And it's not 50% truth and 50% love, and you meet in the middle, and you have to compromise. It's 100% truth and 100% love, speaking the truth in love. And why do we need the truth to be spoken in love? Because truth without love will not be heard. Have you experienced that? Have you ever been on the other end of a conversation where someone's trying to tell you what they think, but you don't trust that they love you and care about you? Truth without love will not be heard, but quote-unquote love without truth will not be helpful. You can't help people if you're not willing at times to speak the truth. And this is what Paul does. He walks into the situation, and he confronts Peter, and he speaks the truth. And the reason why this matters is because if you're going to, listen, if you're going to have any sort of meaningful relationships in your life, you're going to have disagreements right? No husbands are shaking their heads. Yes, that's smart. But yes, there's going to be disagreements when we are married, when we have children. I have, we have a, every night we have the same disagreement with our children. It's about bedtime. I mean, every night like clockwork, it's the same disagreement. It's like, it's always bedtime now. And they always want to say, why now? To have meaningful relationships and to be part of a meaningful community is going to result in conflict and disagreements. If you want to be a part of a church, not just show up, but really be a part of a church, I promise you at some point you're going to get your feelings hurt. I promise you at some point you're going to disagree with someone. I promise you at some point someone's going to say something, and it might just be me, 
that's going to bother you, offend you, not align with you. And if you bail at that point, then you never really had community. Because real community is pushing through those things and being able to speak the truth in love and have the hard conversations with each other. And that's what we see here. So we need hard conversations. Another reason why you and I need hard conversations is because each of us is an expert at self-deception. Nobody has lied to you in your life more than you. We can't see ourselves properly. We all have blind spots, and so we need these hard conversations. None of us is smarter than all of us. I was listening to a podcast this last week about a doctor in Dallas, Texas. Maybe you remember this from the news about seven years ago. His name was Christopher Dunce. He was a neurosurgeon in Dallas, Texas, and he ended up with the nickname Dr. Death. He's currently serving a life sentence in prison for the way that he operated on his patients. He was a terrible surgeon, but beyond that, he was a sociopath and he was a narcissist, so he couldn't be told that he wasn't good. And he didn't believe that he wasn't good. And he did 38 neurosurgeries and 33 of his patients suffered terribly, 20 of them with lifelong conditions, and two of them died. And that's why he, and, and as I'm listening to this podcast, finally two surgeons who kept getting called in, two other neurosurgeons from other hospitals, they kept calling, him, calling them in to clean up his mess. They'd say, we got a terrible surgery, it went terribly wrong. And so these two other surgeons kept coming in to deal with the mess and to try to go back in and figure out why this was here and why this was there. And they, and they looked inside and one of the surgeons said, this is not just bad surgery, this is attempted murder. Like, this is a terrible thing that's happened here. But finally, two surgeons went to the Board of Health in Texas and said, you got to stop this, man. There's something wrong with one. Finally, someone was willing to have the hard conversation. See, when we aren't willing to have hard conversations, it means I'm not actually willing to help you. I'm not willing to protect you. I'm not willing to look out for you. And gospel community means hard conversations. How do we initiate those conversations well? Well, it starts with what I like to call kind courage. Kind courage. The courage to say what needs to be said, but the kindness to say in a way that is loving and can be heard and received. We have to keep the environment safe. And the way that we keep the environment safe in what would be called hard conversations or crucial conversations is by paying very close attention to our tone, right? Tone communicates more than, than words sometimes, and timing. Sometimes timing and tone is more important than what you have to say. So if the emotions are very high, it's probably not the right time yet to have that conversation. Find a different time to have that conversation. Time and tone matters. Sometimes you have to say up front what you're not saying before you say what you want to say. So if you have to, some of you are managers or, or business owners and you have people that work for you, and if you have to confront somebody on the quality of their work, you don't intend to fire them, but you just want them to get better. It's helpful to start your conversation with saying, I want you to know that I see you being a part of this team moving forward, and I'm committed to your success, but there's a few things I think we need to work on. And here's what, you have, here's what you've just done. You've taken out of their mind what they fear the conversation is going to be about, and now they can actually hear what you have to say. If you don't say first what you aren't saying, then they can't hear what you are saying because they keep waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole conversation. And so there's, there's little tricks and tools, and if, if, this is a, if this is your life and you're always having what's called crucial hard conversations, there's a great book called Crucial Conversations that you should read. It'll help you a lot. But also, when you initiate these conversations, you have to look at your own heart and say, why do I want to? Sometimes people want to have hard conversations. They want to confront people because they love being right. And if you love being right, be careful about your motivation in having these conversations. Some people, it's not about protecting the person. It's about attacking the person. And so we need to know our own motivations. Now, how do we position ourselves to, to receive these conversations? We need to have humility. We need to be teachable. We need to realize we have room to grow and things that we can learn. 
We also, uh, we also need to realize that we should not assume what someone's motivation is just because we don't like their message. S- learn, this is, this is a mature thing, is to be able to separate message from motivation so we can hear what is being said. The gospel has a way of freeing us from the insecurity and pride that prevents us from receiving hard conversations. Now, here's a question for you before we go to our second point. Who in your life has hard conversations with you? And I don't mean they give you a hard time, or I'm not, I don't mean that they bully you, and I don't mean that you don't... I mean, who actually has permission in your life to ask you hard questions, to talk to you about your spiritual well-being? And if you don't have that person in your life, you're missing out on gospel community because gospel community is a people who are willing to have hard conversations. Secondly, we also learn here that it's a people who will fight for the truth of the gospel. And super important that on the heels of what I just said, I say this, because what I just said was I did not give any of you open license to start confronting everybody on everything. I don't like the way you wear this. I don't like the way you act. I don't like the way you think. I don't like what you posted yesterday. It doesn't give you open license for that because Paul's not fighting Peter on his opinion. Paul's not confronting Peter on his, on his soapbox current issue. Paul is not confronting Peter on a peripheral issue. Paul confronts Peter because look what it says in verse, in, in the text. It says, when I saw that their, what? their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, So Paul realizes what's at stake here is not just opinion and preference, but the actual gospel. Peter, you're living in a way and you're publicly leading in a way that's leading other people to follow in your footsteps, which is why Paul confronts Peter publicly and not privately like we're instructed to do in other parts of Scripture. They're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? We sang it a bunch this morning, but look at this next verse. It's a nice little summary. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What does justified mean? Growing up, I was told justified means just as if I'd never sinned. It's helpful, but it's only half true. Because justified is not just as if I'd never sinned. It's also just as if I lived the life Jesus lived. He doesn't just clear my record. He gives me Christ's perfect performance record. So justification is this. It's the act. It's not, it's not a process. It's an act by which God declares and treats repentant sinners as righteous because of their faith and trust in Jesus. And Paul is saying here, Peter, you're asking the Gentiles to adhere to some Jewish customary laws. Because there's a, you know, for thousands of years, the Jews had, had protected themselves through laws of ceremonial cleanliness. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat the same food that Gentiles ate. And so what was happening here is Peter, there were Gentile believers in Antioch, and Peter was going to their homes where they were having their services back then. They didn't have service like this. They met in homes. He'd go to their homes, and he'd have service, and then he'd stay for a meal. But when these Jewish people from Jerusalem came and he thought maybe they wouldn't like that because of his fear of what they thought, he, he started to change. And some commentaries say that he kept maybe going to the homes for the service, but he would bail before the meal. He would leave before the meal. And maybe it had even progressed to the point where Peter was no longer even going into their homes. And Paul is saying, Peter, you've, you've forgotten the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus did to restore you? Do you remember what Jesus did to bring you in? Peter had already at this point in his life had a vision where God had very clearly spoken to him and said, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Peter was instrumental uh, in seeing uh, Cornelius, who was a Gentile. His entire household was saved, filled with the Spirit, prayed in heavenly languages, and was baptized in water all in one day through Peter's ministry. And Peter realized, this good news, this gospel, it's not just for the Jewish people, it's for the Gentiles. But Peter was forgetting 
and he was drifting back into an old pattern of life. And so Paul calls him out because he's fighting for the truth of the gospel. Why do you and I still struggle with sin? Why do we still have sinful attitudes and sinful thoughts? The root cause is gospel forgetfulness. All sinful behavior grows in the soil of gospel forgetfulness. Our pastoral team, we meet together on Wednesdays, and we're reading through a book right now called Lead by Paul David Tripp. And this past week in our staff meeting, we were sharing, each of us was sharing something we read that week that had spoken to our hearts. And in the chapter that we were reading, uh, Paul David Tripp writes about gospel leadership and how it needs to be marked by patience. And i just be honest, I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like it. Patience is not my thing. I'm a pretty impatient person, and it manifests itself all the time. Boy, I'm impatient in the Starbucks drive through line. I am impatient. I'm impatient when the Wi-Fi is just a little bit too slow for my liking. I'm, I'm impatient in traffic. I'm impatient when it takes long for important information. I'm impatient when people take longer to do a task than I think they should take to do it. And I realize... This is not just a character flaw. This is not something I can fix just by trying to be more patient. This is a gospel forgetfulness issue. And when I'm being impatient in traffic because I feel like I can't control the outcome of my day, I need to remind myself of a gospel truth that God is in control. And Jesus Christ, who had the control of the universe, gave it all up and put his life in the hands of Roman soldiers who crucified him. He gave up the control so that he could give us confidence and strength. Why do I? Another way that I forget the gospel is that I forget how Jesus, sometimes when I'm impatient, if I'm just being real, let's just be real. Sometimes when I'm impatient, it's because what's taking long is, is discomforting me or inconveniencing me. And, I'm, and I love comfort and I love convenience and anything that gets in the way is viewed as a threat. And what I have to remind myself is this gospel truth that Jesus Christ gave up the comforts of heaven. And he came down to earth and he embraced the discomfort of the human experience, being uh, in obscurity for 30 years, being misunderstood by his very family, being abandoned and, and, and betrayed and denied by his closest disciples and dying the death of a criminal. Jesus gave up the comforts of heaven and embraced the discomfort of being a crucified, suffering servant so that I could have a future comfort, a hope of true comfort and a comfort even in the midst of my suffering. And then sometimes the way I forget the gospel when I'm impatient towards people, and this is a big one, I forget how patient God's been towards me. How patient has God been towards you? God has poured out his patience on me in endless ways, and who am I to withhold just a little bit of patience from a barista doing their best to make my latte? It's a, it seems silly, but it's true. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel forgetfulness issue. And as a people, we need to learn to fight for the truth of the gospel and speak the gospel to each other. And instead of just rebuking each other in hard conversations saying you shouldn't think that way, you shouldn't act that way, you shouldn't believe that way, we should keep pulling people back to the gospel. Have you forgotten how good God is? You're so anxious. Have you, have you forgotten how God's power is displayed in the way in which he, he, he sovereignly works all things out for his good? and for our good, and for his purposes, and for his plans. 
We're so caught up in frivolous little things that divide us and split us up. And have we forgotten that Christ came to destroy the wall of hostility, the only wall of hostility that matters, so that we could have that open door that we sang about this morning into the very presence of God. We forget the gospel and our hearts begin to fill up with lesser things. And if we're going to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, we're going to learn to get into each other's lives a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable into each other's lives, have hard conversations, but always make sure the hard conversation is about about fighting for the truth of the gospel. And then the last thing that we learn in this text, I'm going to have the band come up because we're going to sing one more song. We're a people who are learning to die to self and live to God. A people learning to die to self and live to God. Galatians 2.20 is probably the most famous uh, verse in this passage. In Galatians 2.20, it says that I have been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen, I I, want to close with this thought. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, it's it's two things. It's both forgiveness from our sins, thank God, but it's also freedom from sin. The gospel is that God has forgiven us from the penalty of our sin, but also he is freeing us from the very power of sin in our lives. And freedom is a big word in our world right now. And there's a lot of conversation and debate over how do we define the word freedom? What does it mean to live free? What does it mean to be free? And there is a part of our society that says freedom is throwing off all limitations. Nobody can tell you how you should live. No one can tell you anything about yourself because freedom is throwing off all limitations and all restrictions. You be you, and that's real freedom. And people are living their lives that way. You know what they're finding? It's not freeing. The thing that they thought would free them actually binds them up. Because listen very carefully. According to this text, what Paul, I believe, is saying here is that freedom is not the absence of all limitations and restrictions. Freedom is the presence of the right ones. The life-giving limitations and restrictions that a loving, caring, creating Father has given to us. Freedom. I've given you this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. A fish in a fishbowl thinks that freedom is out there. If I could just get out of this restriction of this little fishbowl, why do I always have to be in water? If I could just get out, and then he breaks out of the fishbowl, and he's flopping on the carpet realizing, like, freedom was not found in getting out. Freedom was found within the right God-created, God-ordained restrictions. A helium balloon on the end of a piece of string is up there floating around thinking, if I could just wriggle free from this restricting string that doesn't let me go where I want, I could fly and be free. And this balloon finally wriggles free from this string and flies up into a tree and pops and falls to the ground and realizes sometimes the things that seem to hold you down actually hold you up. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the question is not, how do I throw off limitations and restrictions? The question is, What plan does the Father have for me? What's the plan for me to flourish, to bear his image well? And Paul says here that he dies to himself. He's been crucified with Christ. He doesn't live. And what Paul says here is so counterintuitive to our society. You know, our culture today, our greatest values in our culture today, broadly speaking, are self-ideation and self-actualization and self-expression and self-definition and self-creation. And the, last, the worst thing you can say to somebody in society today is, maybe you shouldn't do what you feel like you should do. Maybe you shouldn't follow every desire. Maybe you shouldn't follow every urge. Maybe they're not all worth following. 
That's a dangerous thing to say today. And into that world, Jesus Christ says this, take up your cross every day and die. Deny yourself. Well, it seems like a lot of nerve to say that, but it's based on two very important truths. And I'll finish. Number one, there's a righteous creator, God, who created all things, and we are accountable to him. And like it or not, God has a plan for this world to flourish and for you to flourish. He has a specific plan, and we're accountable to the God who created us. But also, according to 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, he's talking to people in this context specifically about sin. In verse 19, he says, do you not know that your body, listen to this, do you not know that your body, this is one of the few times in all of the New Testament that the word body is in the singular form. So he's not talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about your actual physical body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Your body was given to you by God. And then listen, now this this will fly in the face of culture. Look at what Paul writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I know this is hard to hear, but I'm just telling you, this is what God's word reveals to us. Here's, Here's what I'm saying. You didn't give yourself natural life. You can't give yourself spiritual life. So the Christian response is to say, Jesus, how do you want me to live this life that you gave me? God, this natural life you gave me, how do you want me to spend my life? Jesus, you bought me with a price. I belong to you. How should I live my life? What are the life-giving limitations and restrictions so I can die to self and live to God? See, the motivation for self-denial is that Jesus first loved us and gave himself for us. I have been crucified with Christ, but that means that Christ first, he was crucified for us. He denied himself so that he could rescue us and save us and make us new. What does it mean to be a people of God? It means we're willing to have hard conversations. It means we're willing to fight. We're eager to fight for the truth of the gospel. And it means that we're learning to die to self and live to Christ. Let's pray together this morning.